you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Genesis chapter 15. We continue our study. The man Abram is an important figure both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. A man who would later be renamed Abraham, and that's how most of us know him. A man of faith, the father of those who believe, a man known as the friend of God. We are told at the beginning of chapter 12, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. As we've seen, he first moved to Haran with his father Terah, and after Terah died, then he moved to Canaan. As we've seen, he left the known for the unknown. He left his country, his people, his father's household um, to a place he had never been before. The Lord made to him at least five promises. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. and You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Curse those who curse you. I will bless all peoples on earth through you. As we've seen, if you think about it for a moment, Abram did not live to see most of these promises fulfilled. But Abram obeyed. He left Haran and he went uh, to Canaan. For the Lord's part, Abram hardly seemed a good prospect as a foundation for a great nation. For Abram's part, how would any of God's promises possibly be fulfilled? And this becomes a recurring issue, uh, as we will see not only today, but in the, the weeks to come. There are two things that I want to consider before we get to chapter 15. Um, and if you would be patient with me, this is a, an extended introduction. First of all, I mentioned that Dave chose the title for this series, Trial and Grace, which as we have seen and shall see, is entirely appropriate. Last Sunday, we saw Abram's dealings with different individuals, which formed the basis of various tests. Due to a severe famine in Canaan, he went down to Egypt, he and his household. And one could make a case that the famine was, in fact, a test for Abram to see if he would look to the Lord for supply. But instead, he went down to Egypt, um, going down isn't, was not necessarily wrong. Let's not project you know, from the end of uh, Genesis, Exodus, where you know, Pharaoh enslaves the Jewish people. Um, no, going to Egypt in and of itself was not wrong. But there's no indication that he asked God about this. And that is seen in the fact that as they're traveling, he tells his wife, Sarai, um, listen, I know you are a beautiful woman. <laughs> And when men see you and they see that we're married, they're going to kill me so they can have you. So just tell people that you're my sister. She was, in fact, a beautiful woman. And Pharaoh took her into his household to be one of his many wives. Abram acted out of fear. And his fear led him to endanger the honor of the one closest to him, that is his wife. But God is gracious. Abram failed that trial, that test. But God is gracious and intervened and afflicted Pharaoh and his household with plagues and diseases. And so Pharaoh says, listen, you lied to me. 
please leave our country. One thing also that I mentioned is that Pharaoh treated Abram well for her sake. He, uh, Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maid servants and camels. He should not have taken these gifts. He basically sold his wife. And then when he got his wife back, he kept the things that Pharaoh had given him. He should have relied on God. He leaves Egypt. He's kicked out, deported basically, and goes back to Canaan. But when he goes to Canaan, he returns to that place where he first built an altar, Bethel. It means the house of God. And he called on the name of the Lord. This was his response to God's grace in intervening in the face of his disastrous failure in Egypt. Then we read how that Abram and Lot, his nephew, uh, had prospered and the country could not, you know, there wasn't enough for all their sheep. So Abram said, listen, we've got to split up. And he gave Lot, his nephew, who is younger, the first choice. Um, Culturally, this is not the way it should be. But Abram now, faced with this test, trusts God. He lets Lot choose first, and Lot lifts up his eyes and looks. He does not live by faith, but by sight, and moves down and lives near Sodom in the Jordan Valley. Abram passed this trial, if you wish, this test, and the Lord spoke in grace. Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever, It will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. So Abram moved his tent and went to live near the great trees at Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. Lot chose poorly, and because he did, he was taken captive when the four kings from the north, Kedolaomer is the head king, that come down against Sodom and other cities, They basically loot and take everything, and they take Lot and his family with them. Abram, in faith, goes after this victorious king with 318 men who have been born into his house. He splits them up, and they attack them. This is in northern Israel, and they rout them. Abram rescues Lot and his Household and the rest of the people from the cities that were defeated. This was the result of God's grace, but now comes the real test. As he comes back, he meets two kings, Bera, king of Sodom, and Melchizedek, who is king of Salem, or Jerusalem. Melchizedek was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, And blessed be God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram responds by giving him a tenth of everything that he had gotten from the four kings to the north. Then comes Bera, the king of Sodom. And basically he says, give me the people, you get to keep everything else. And here is the test. Will Abram do what he did in Egypt and allow this king to give him stuff that will in fact prosper him even more than he has already prospered. And he says, no, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal. Uh, 
so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. Abram relies and trusts God. He gives to Melchizedek. He will not take anything from Bera. And it's true. It, it seems quite clear that he trusted God. I think that Melchizedek's appearance was one of grace. God brought Abram in contact with someone who was a priest of God, who knew God as God most high creator of heaven and earth. I think this was a great act of grace on God's part. So that's what we've seen. But I, I, in going through this, I realized that there's something that I failed to point out, which I think is important. I think I may have given the impression that the trial always comes before grace. In reality, grace comes before the trial, and then grace comes after the trial. And so it is grace, trial, and then grace. In the life of Abram, grace came when God called him. God called him and said, listen, you need to leave your country, you need to leave your people, you need to leave your father's household and go to a place that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And Abraham did it. It was grace that God called him and Abram, the trial is I got to go someplace that I've never been to before where I don't know anybody. But he did that and God was gracious to him. Of all the people in the world, why would God choose Abram? He was 75 years old. He belonged to a pagan household. He was married to Sarai and she was barren. She had no children. Um, it was an act of grace on God's part to call him and to make promises to him. So just to be clear, and I'll talk about this a bit, uh, the Lord begins the process with grace. Okay? He doesn't begin the process with trial. He begins with grace. And then comes a trial or testing, which is then again followed by grace, which is necessary due to our fallenness and our failures. Before the events of chapter 14, the taking of Lot, the defeat of Kelelemer and the meeting with Melchizedek and Bera, there were promises at the end of chapter 13. If you look at the end of chapter 13, the Lord said to Abraham, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land I will give you and then I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So there is grace and then there is the trial. Is he going to take from Bera everything he's offered? No. And then there is grace again. I think perhaps the best example of this, though it's not oftentimes seen this way, is the creation of Adam and Eve. God created them. He placed them in the garden. He gave them callings, Adam to name the animals, and they were to take care of the garden. And he put boundaries these are the things you can do. These are the, this is the thing you cannot do. And all of these are examples of divine grace. God was no, under no obligation to create humanity. He was under, if he, let's say he did create them, he was under, under obligation to put them in this garden 
where everything is available to them. And he was under no obligation to set boundaries. All of these are acts of grace. Then comes the test, the serpent who tempts Eve. We might question, in fact, it's come up this week, why God allowed the serpent at all. In many ways, I think it's above my pay grade to know that. But somehow, I think one of the problems is we think there should be no test or trial. Why should Eve be tempted? Why should there be a trial or a test of her faith in God? It is in trials and testings that we learn and we grow. Does that sound terrible? Can't we just grow without testing, without trials? Adam and Eve failed the test, but God was gracious. Even though they're kicked out of the garden, he put uh, animal skins on them. And we read in chapter 4 that Eve conceived and gave birth to a son. And what does Eve say about this son? With the Lord's help, I have brought forth a man. She recognized this is grace. She had disobeyed God. She had been put out of the garden, and yet there is still grace. There is that astounding passage in Hebrews chapter 5. It's just amazing to me. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. Through the trial, he learned obedience. Trials are those things, I think, that test our faith, but it is also through these trials that we learn obedience. You may notice that Melchizedek is mentioned in there, and we looked at this last week, that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. All things being equal, I think we would prefer no tests, no trials. Um, But having received grace, our faith is then put to the test. Have we, in fact, received the grace of God? Are we going to trust him and do what he tells us to do? It is, in fact, an opportunity to put our faith into practice. Now we come to chapter 15, which marks a shift of sorts. Up to this point, the struggle for Abram has been with regard to security. He is in a strange country. He's left his home, and now he's in Canaan. There's a famine. He goes down to Egypt. He comes back to Canaan. He is still a stranger in this place. How is he going to be safe? How is he going to be secure? And if you'll allow me, I want to revisit briefly the series on fear. Um, I asserted that fear tempts us to make safety and security, self-preservation, our highest goals. Doesn't it sound like Abram? 
Sarah, you're really beautiful. They're going to kill me, so lie to these people, so I will be preserved. Security becomes the new idol, that which comes between us and God. We want to be secure. And I would argue that today, many Christians echo what we find in our culture, this safety and security as the primary good. This is what we seek. And what has happened is that fear has transformed safety into a virtue. If I'm safe, then I'm a good person. It becomes one of the main virtues of our society. What we find is a worldview that equates the good life with risk aversion. I'm going to take any chances. I'm going to play it safe. I want to be secure. And as a result, when we are fearful, again, we open our worship by saying, I will not fear, but when we are fearful, then in fact, it has significant moral consequences. We become suspicious. We try to accumulate to keep ourselves safe. And what we do is we no longer show hospitality, peacemaking, or generosity because we want to be safe. Why would I share food with you? I might not have enough for me. And then what happens if I don't have enough? Instead of being marked by hospitality. The preoccupation with safety provides a temporary and artificial solution to the fragmentation of our society. I find it interesting, particularly in the last three years, that while we may disagree on many things, moral issues like abortion, and war, sex, poverty. We all seem, in fact, to agree on this. We've got to be safe. We have to be safe. Safety becomes the least common denominator morality. In a world that is divided by so many things, let's just say, stick with politics. In the last three years, our world has been united in fear. Our common fearfulness takes on the appearance of a gift. Isn't it great? We have a common goal. We have something that unites us. But this unity is deceptive. We are not to be fearful. It is the most repeated commandment in Scripture. Do not be afraid. And yet the temptation is there. In our world, moral language has been medicalized, virtue signaling. Uh, People are worried about sounding judgmental about others. Um, But it's all about safety. That becomes the new morality. If we could just have security. In fact, what our society does is try to regulate our behavior through fear. You have to do this, because if you don't, something bad could happen. Safety is worshipped as the highest good. And health and safety, the primary justifications for doing what we do. As a result, we live timid lives. We want to avoid all risk 
We don't want to make bold gestures. Um, instead of being courageous, we want to be safe. And I've said this before, I think if somehow the people of the last 50 years or more, if you could transport us back in time to the 18th century, when we came to the 21st century, we'd still all be on the East Coast. Because we would not be brave enough to take a risk to move West. We are a different people than our ancestors who were willing to take risks but we just want to be safe. For Abram at this point, security is no longer the issue. He's been through these tests, and God has preserved him. He left Ur of the Chaldees. He left Haran. He was in Canaan during a famine, went to Egypt, left Egypt, and has come back. Lot took the better of the two choices, seemingly. But God took care of him. He went after and rescued Lot. Security is no longer an issue for Abram. The issue now is different. It is, will God keep his promise? It is a promise that will not be fulfilled for another 25 years. And in terms of chapters, we'll have another six chapters of Genesis to go before God keeps his promise. And this is the struggle for Abram. God will take care of me. He's not worried about safety or security. He's learned that by God's grace. What he struggles with now is, will God keep his promises? I think it's a struggle that many of us have. Except, um, I don't know if this is the point to say this, Oftentimes we think God has promised us something that he hasn't. And then we get upset because God didn't keep his promise, when in fact he didn't make that promise. But for Abram, the promise has been made. And the question is, is God going to keep it? What we find in chapter 15 is really important, um, particularly in the New Testament. In Romans 4, Galatians 3, James chapter 2, they all refer to this. Um, This is from Romans 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In Galatians, the same thing. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Again, it's repeated in James chapter 2, verse 23. That's the first thing. The second thing here in chapter 15 is the covenant. God has been making all these promises, but there isn't a contract, if you wish. There isn't something, an agreement. That happens here in chapter 15. And so chapter 15 is an incredibly important chapter. Um... This is the covenant which is the basis for what will happen at Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and the, new co- or the covenant there, and then with Jesus in the New Testament. As we read uh, before communion, the new covenant in his blood. By the way, Zacharias, he sang a song on the day that John was named. He was circumcised and named on the eighth day. He said, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant 
the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Okay, let's get to our text. The promises clarified is made clear. I mean, he said, I'll make you a great nation. How's that going to happen? Okay, look if you with the first six verses of Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Some things to consider. Some people wonder when this happened, because it simply says, after this, uh, which I would take, it means after the various trials. Okay? Again, the Lord takes initiative. The word of the Lord came to him in a vision. And the issue raised is fear. Do not be afraid, Abram. But Abram is not afraid. Okay? He's told not to fear, um, and he's told why he shouldn't be afraid. The reason he shouldn't be afraid is because God says, I am your shield, your very great reward. Abram is to trust the person of God, in the person of God. But as I said, Abram's concern lies elsewhere. At this point, Safety and security is not the issue. The issue is how is, he, how is his line going to continue? Sarah is barren. He can't have children. What is he supposed to do? Of the, of the five promises made in chapter 12, the first one is, I will make you into a great nation. Well, how do you become a great nation if you can't even have one child? That, how can that happen? That simply can't happen. So he proposes a solution. Uh, I don't know if he had a will or how it worked back then, but when he died, everything is going to go to Eliezer of Damascus, the head servant in his household. He could simply legally adopt him, and so Eliezer would be considered his son, and Abram's line would continue through him. It's a reasonable solution. It's something that was very common in the ancient world where if someone did not have children, or even if they did have children, and they wanted to designate someone to be their heir, they would, they would adopt them. Julius Caesar adopted Octavian. It wasn't his physical, it wasn't his biological son. He adopted him. So this is something that was done in the ancient world. It is a reasonable solution. And maybe this is what God has in mind. But now it is clarified in verse number four, okay? This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. You are going to have a son. It's the first time a son has been mentioned. And it will come from his own body. It's not going to happen through adoption. 
It will be his biological son. And then he takes him outside. Apparently this vision happened at night. He takes him outside the tent and says, look at the stars. Count the stars if indeed you can count them. I think for most of us, we live in a world of light pollution. I mean, on any given night, if you can see maybe six stars, and maybe one of them or two of them are planets, we're lucky. We need to go sometime out into the desert someplace where there are no city lights and just look up at the heavens and just be amazed at the number of the stars. Abram didn't have a problem with light pollution. He saw the stars. And God said, your descendants are going to be like that. And his response is, he believed the Lord. The test is, will he believe the Lord? And he believes the Lord. And it is credited to him as righteousness. As I mentioned, it's found in Romans 4, in Galatians 3, and in James chapter 2. By the way, side note, the King James Version says, Abraham believed in the Lord. Um, The first trust is personal. He trusts God. And the second trust is propositional. He trusts the promises that God made to him, that in fact he would have a son. Now comes the covenant. It begins in verse number seven. Follow along if you would as I read this. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other, The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions." You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. So the issue of the son has been settled. You're going to have a biological son from your body. Okay, you will. Uh, Sarah will have a son you're going to have a descendant, okay? But then the second part of the promise is that this land will belong to your descendants. And Abram's like, yeah, I don't know how that's going to happen. So we saw Abram did not live to see most of these promises fulfilled. 
But I don't know that this is his concern here. Rather, he needed reassurance, a sign that the promise would be fulfilled. And so God initiates a ceremony of covenant. This is something that we find in the ancient world. And in fact, Jeremiah, who lived a thousand years later, spoke of a very similar thing. The men who have violated my covenant, this is God speaking through Jeremiah, have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me. I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walk between its pieces. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests, and all the people of the land who walk between the pieces of the calf, I will hand over to their enemies who seek their lives. Their dead bodies will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. The animals are cut in half, and then the people who are entering into covenant pass between the halves. And the symbolism is like, this is going to happen to you if you don't live up to the terms of the agreement. The covenant was as binding as those bodies had been before they were cut in half, and now you pass between them to say, I will keep this covenant. So Abraham does what God says. But the birds come down because obviously here are carcasses for them to feed on. He saw the sanctity of the sacrifice and he drives them away. But then something happened. A thick and dreadful darkness fell over him. It is something to symbolize the act, what will happen in the future. Um, that his descendants... There will be plenty of them, but they, in fact, will go through very, very difficult times. They will be strangers in a country not their own. We now know it's Egypt. Okay? And they will be enslaved and mistreated for four centuries, 400 years. But then God would punish Egypt and they would come out with great possessions. It's a prophecy of what would happen. Trial and then grace. They would be enslaved, but then they would come out with great possessions. But Abram would not live to see this. God tells him, you, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. You're going to have to trust me on this, Abram. I'm going to keep my promise. You're not going to live to see it. That's kind of hard, isn't it? I'm going to make you a promise but you're going to die before I keep my promise. But Abraham believed God. He believed God. There is an interesting statement, though, and it's bothered me in the past, but verse number 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Like, what? What could this possibly mean? They are going to be in Egypt for four centuries, more than four centuries. In the meantime, the Canaanites are going to be a wicked people. And at a certain point, God said, okay, that's it. Israel, come out of Egypt and take the land. And so the taking of Canaan is not an act of aggression. Boy, these 
these, these Israelites, they're a sort of bloodthirsty people taking what doesn't belong to them. No, it is an act of justice. Because their wickedness, the sin of the Canaanites, has reached the point where God says, that's it. And that's why the Israelites are told to kill everybody. Something that we struggle with. But it is justice. It is not an act of aggression. And then God himself walks between the pieces. There's a fire pot and a torch. It appeared and it went through the pieces. God will keep his promises, his covenant to Abraham. God said, Abram, this land, I'm giving it to your descendants. All these other people here that are mentioned, the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kalmanites, Hittites, Perizzites, all these people, yeah. Their land I'm giving you, I'm giving to your descendants. Abraham believed God. He trusted God and he trusted his promises. Okay. To, to wrap this up, it all begins with grace. And it always ends in grace. In between are the trials. God gives us things. God is gracious to us. He saves us. And then in between are trials. God hasn't abandoned us. It's not as though God's, okay, I'm going to be there at the beginning. I'm going to be there at the end. He's with us, but we have to go through the trials. We have to go through the test, the test to see, did we learn? Did we understand are we going to trust him and do as he told us to do? He stands by us. He guides us. He gives us strength. The question is, do we trust him? And here in Genesis 15, the issue is trust, not security. That part of the lesson Abram has learned, kind of, because we always seem to need to relearn the lesson. We will see this as we get uh, chapter 20. It's like, at that point is Abraham. like, Abraham, I, I, I thought you learned this lesson. Um, grace, and then the test, and then grace again. Let's pray together. Our Father, if we had our way, there would be no difficulties in life. In fact, some have proclaimed that you have promised your children a hassle-free life, no difficulties. We will have more than enough all the time. Our health will be great all the time. We will be safe all the time. Help us to trust that you know what is best. You have been so gracious to us in our lives. And from time to time, there, there are tests, there are trials to see whether or not, in fact, we believe you or believe in you. That you are the first in our life, not our safety or our security. Not any prosperity, but you. And so if 
like Job, these things are taken away, our faith should still be in you. Help us to realize, to remember that as a child learns to walk, falls down over and over again, so are our trials as your children. But you're always there. You've not abandoned us. You're not sadistic and wanting to see us fail. It begins in grace. You are with us in grace. At the end of it all, you are gracious. And we give thanks. We live in a world this time that values safety and security above all things. May we see that you are our exceeding reward and our faith is to be in you. I thank you for bringing us together today. We've spoken to one another of needs, of joys, things for which we are thankful. We remember Rosa at this point and her situation with the house. Give her wisdom, send the right people across her path to make the right decisions. And for each of us as we walk through the world in this coming week, may we trust you. May we have a sense of your presence that you are right there with us every step of the way. We thank you for your love, which you've shown supremely in your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.